You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. As many of you know, I write novels, and a few weeks ago, I did an email promotion with an author services company to get the word out about my first mystery, Uncorking a Murder. While that promotion was running, I received an email from a fellow author who was also participating in the same campaign and was interested in being part of this podcast. Now, some of you might think that writing a book is the hardest part about being an author, but for me, that's actually the fun part. It's the marketing and getting the word out that's actually most challenging. Um, And this is coming from somebody who has worked in marketing professionally for over two decades. So even when you're published by one of the big publishing houses, the weight of the marketing for most authors is really on our shoulders. So how could I really say no to somebody else on this journey? Karen Rands is the founder of Cougarand Capital Holdings, and she's also the author of Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. Now, I started my career in the mid-1990s during the dot-com tech boom, and back in those days, you couldn't avoid hearing the term angel investing at least four times before lunch. Karen's new book is geared towards teaching potential angel investors the ins and outs of growing their wealth through what she calls compassionate capitalism. Now, compassion isn't something you ever hear alongside the word capitalism. Capitalism is all about the survival of the fittest, and typically there's no room for what we might think of as compassion – when going head-to-head with competition. Karen bridges the divide between the two terms by redefining compassion, which she believes is formed from the idea that entrepreneurs have passions for their ideas and build businesses around them. Compassion to her is the creating of a company that is passionate about the potential to change the world. In compassionate capitalism, we have an environment where moneymakers enable others to bring innovation to the market, and by doing so, create jobs and wealth for all involved. When investors use their money and talents as compassionate capitalists, they will feel an emotional abundance that exists alongside the wealth they've created. I want to point out that Karen Rand is giving away $10,000 worth of her book, Inside Secrets Angel Investing, this Labor Day weekend. So visit Amazon.com and search for Karen Rand to download your free digital copy. And now, my interview with Karen Rand. When you were when you were a little girl, did did you ever dream of yourself, imagine yourself writing a book called uh, "Inside Secrets to Angel Investing"? Or oh. how did uh, how did we That's get to this? That's a really good question. Really good question. Um, so, ironically enough, um, you know, life takes you on kind of a crazy journey over time. So, when I was in high school, I didn't know you know what I would call it, but my I've said, oh, wouldn't it be great to be in a career or have a job where my my thing was I flew all over the world and I um, connected up 
um, at that time it was, um, you know, companies that were expanding and, you know, you know, like joint venturing, acquiring companies. I didn't even really know what it was. It was just sort of like this, I envisioned this idea of pulling, um, putting companies and opportunities together kind of a thing. It was sort of like this, that's kind of what I envisioned. I'm looking for opportunities and helping companies expand on that. And so that was kind of like this idea when I was in high school. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know how to get there. I just thought it would be kind of cool. Um, um, be a jet setter. So anyway, I got married and all of that other kind of stuff. So I didn't become a jet setter, but, um, you know, I spent, uh, I went, so part of what I thought I was going to do with that was I was going to get an MBA JD degree. Okay. So I was going to combine legal, you know, with the business side of things. And so I went to, um, in college at Emory, I went to, I got an economics degree because I felt like that was a, a, a good foundation for those other kind of things. And so then when I went, when I got through school and I went and started to apply, I got in different law schools and I got in different business schools, but the few schools that actually had a combined program, I didn't get into both the combined program. So I ended up going to University of Florida, their MBA degree, and I was going to still try to do the law thing. And after another year of school, I was like, I'm done. I can't do any more school. I'm not going to do another three years of law school. So um, I just kind of went off went into IBM and um, was one of those, which you would probably call a term they use now as entrepreneur, because I was always sort of an entrepreneur within the company. And so when I joined them, not to date myself too much, but it was exactly when they were bringing out the PC. And so in the micro channel and all that kind of stuff, it was kind of in those early dates. And so I was part of a new group of bringing, you know, doing the whole PC marketing kind of a deal. And as part of that, we launched products and we, the sales channel that I was in was one of the big sales channels for IBM. And so I was responsible for creating go-to-market campaigns and educating and marketing and supporting the sales organization in the dealer channel to be able to sell these things. Desktop publishing, remember that? Oh, Um, sure. Nobody even really thinks about desktop publishing anymore because it's just all part of what we do, but it was like a big thing and we're competing against Apple and all this kind of stuff. And so long story short, I went through a couple, I went into the wireless space when wireless was hot went into was a segment manager for pin-based solutions, bringing pin-based solutions out, married it up to kind of like the last mile of automation was what you did in your hand. You know, now we take all that stuff for granted with pins, but back then it was like a big deal to be able to write on a computer and do stuff like that and fill out a form and all the kind of things that we do now. And so um, I built the, I was part of the team that built the wireless integration business for IBM. And then um, my last job there, my nickname was the deal maker. I was a complex opportunity business manager was the actual title. And uh, that job was, was during the whole dot com stuff. And, um, and it was uh, this period where IBM realized it was missing out because the way they had set up their marketing structure of what they considered small business and regular business. And so they were missing out on all the Ebays and the Amazons and all this kind of stuff. Cause once they standardized on some technology, when they got big that IBM normally would look at them with a the team, they were already standardized on something. So they put together this task force and these things, complex opportunity business managers. And my job was to bring the IBM resources together to help an entrepreneur um, that was either going into now called cloud, but back then it was um, the ASP model, okay, and going from click and mortar to uh, brick and mortar to click and mortar. I don't know if you remember that term. Oh, sure. A big deal when they started doing e-commerce. So help them get their business model and technology together so that they could go out and get venture capital and then come back and spend it with IBM. 
So I left in the year 2000 with the idea, oh, this is so exciting, all this innovation, all this kind of stuff. And I had proposed to IBM a job where I would take innovation on the shelf and I would go out and package it and get people to license it and build companies. And they really couldn't see it. So I wanted to get in that game. And I joked that um, in my bubble of IBM, I really didn't know how the capital markets worked. And I wanted to be in the parade and not watch the parade go by, but it was 2000, right? And so what was happening in 2000? We had the dot-com bomb. So it was like, I always say, it's like the... Animal House video where, you know, the movie where they're going down the parade and they all run into the alley and they're all up against <laughs> the brick wall running into the alley. So that was the parade I was getting in and I didn't even yeah. know there was a brick wall there. But in the process, I discovered angel investing and I was like, wow, really? These people take their own money and they had, it was such a foreign concept. And I had left to go work with this company and was looking at ways to raise capital for him. And, um, I had was going to these events, the Network of Business Angels and Investors, and the owner of that was looking to retire. So he mentored me. I started being involved in all the process of how they did deals, interviewing the investors on how they made decisions to invest in angel in deals, why they picked this deal over that deal, and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that I found out was um, in that process uh, is that a lot of them said that they would go to an event or go to like go look at a deal because of a friend and they'd invest and then they would lose money on a few deals and they'd learn what they needed to do. And then they would, you know, be a successful angel. I thought that's a horrible way to learn how to be an angel investor. (laughs) I mean, you think about your capacity of capital to be able to blow it on a couple of deals before you finally figured out. And even your desire to keep doing that. That's rare. So I had to, I, I had somebody come to me and say, is there any training materials to help people learn how to be an angel investor. And I looked around and there, there was a lot for entrepreneurs, but not really. So I wrote the first version of this. It was called how to be an angel investor. And it was just a series of eBooks back when eBooks were PDFs and you didn't sell them on an Amazon and any of that kind of stuff. And there was no Kindle or anything like that. And so I, I had sold them and gave them a lot away, rebuilt the angel group, built a national kind of a presence on the angel space. And then when the jobs act happened, it was time to dust that off, update it, because, you know, this whole barrier between entrepreneurs and investors has really been removed. But what's not been done is to help the investors that have a desire to invest in entrepreneurs and bring innovation to market, create jobs, all that stuff. There's no way for, they don't know how to yeah. do that. So I want to I get into all of that, but just a couple of things I wanted to point out. Um, first of all, Dealmaker, not a terrible nickname. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you mentioned Animal House, Flounder, not a great nickname. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like, you know, from, from when you were in a, a very early age, you kind of had a very commercial mindset. And that's something that I find with very successful people that they have a, they kind of know what they want to do or have a sense of what they want to do early on in life. And they have the ability to, to take thought and put it into action. Um, and I think to me, that's what separates, you know, people who are very successful from people who are dreamers. Um, can you, can you talk to that at all? And then I have a number of questions about angel investing, which, which we'll get to in a second, but I just love your reflections on that. Yeah. That's that old age old question is, is an entrepreneur born or bred, right? And so, um, I've come to the conclusion after working with hundreds of entrepreneurs is that. There's a lot of times there's usually that, like you said, there's like a spark inside where they always kind of think of things a little bit different. They're, 
whether it's like figuring out how to do a, a, a really actually do a lemonade stand or, you know, whatever it is that they were kind of, and they got this kind of a bug of trying to solve problems and provide things and do that kind of stuff. And then they, over time, they become better and better at it. And so they're, and then there's those that, you know, because of some kind of a displacement um, or something, they may decide, well, I can't get a job, so I'll go be an entrepreneur. And they're trying to be bred into being an entrepreneur and it's hard if they don't have that spark inside of them. So I do think, you know, my husband really very thankful that he likes having a W2 income <laughs> because as I've been ups and downs through the years of learning how to be a better entrepreneur and what I do, um, you know, he's had that somewhat steady income to, you know, keep the household afloat and stuff like that. And so you need those people that really like um, being a part of a, of a team, part of a company, and not always being the one that's the innovator on the forefront of it. But you have to have the innovators because you think everything we have in our world, yeah. everything that we benefit from, everything that we love that makes our life easier came as a result of um, some form of an innovation that a dreamer figured out how to build a company around because they had the passion. That kind of goes into what the whole compassionate capitalist yeah. thing is about. And I do, I do want to get to that um, because you do mention this term compassionate capitalism. And those are two terms that I don't really hear side by side. You know, there's all, you know, from depending on who you talk to, the term capitalism is a four letter word. Um, where does this, where did you get the idea behind compassionate capitalism? Actually, how, how do you define it? And then how did you bridge the gap between compassion and capitalism? Okay. So, I'll do the definition first. So the definition that I originally started with, and it's kind of morphed in order to get into our, you know, bite-sized chunk of information the way we do things these year, these days. But um, initially it was, I saw um, this need for people, you know, so people that I, as I met more and more investors and people that are passionately committed to helping entrepreneurs succeed, it was um, where people invest money, time, energy, resources, knowledge into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market, create jobs, and create wealth. And so that was kind of like the definition. It, it was first brought to me through, um, uh, if you know, of Amway, uh, Rich DeVos. He wrote a book called Compassionate Capitalism. Of course, his definition was more about helping people start home-based businesses so that they can have money to go out and spend in the capitalist system, right, and be in compassionate about helping people build their businesses. So it was a different context than how I use it. Um, but that was where I, I had been a part of that way back when and learned a lot about personal development was the most thing I got out of it. And so the, um, so the whole thing about um, in, when the economy tanked, I used to, have, I had this radio show, blog talk radio show that I called spec radio because I ran a big, large angel investor and venture capital event called the um, Southeast private equity conference and I used to call it spec radio. But then when the economy tanked, I said, you know what? We have to get these people. There's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. And we have to start getting people to think differently about how they invest their money. And I was a real believer in Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow quadrant and the right side of the quadrant where people take their money and their money 
they make their money, make money and not just about time. It's about how you have money duplicate itself by investing in businesses, investing in real estate, investing in things that create money and, um, and create other wealth. And so I said, you know, I know because I knew investors that pull their money out of the stock market. They had it sitting in safe places. They were just sitting there with their money on the sidelines. I said, if I can do anything to spur them to think about if you want to really grow our economy, we have to be the ones that invest in these small businesses that because that's where all the job growth comes. So that was kind of where it got started. I took on that mantle for the radio show, became the Compassionate Capitalist radio show like 10 years ago. And then um, I started to, as I've been, you know, talking about the book and kind of coming up with this, I realized, and I came up with a different kind of phraseology on it, that so capitalism is really this, the ecosystem that makes everything work. Even, and I just answered this question today on Facebook to somebody, they said, isn't that an oxymoron? And I said, no, I said, actually, if you think about it, even China, for the most part, has become somewhat capitalism because capitalism means that you create a product that the market wants and they're willing to pay money and you can make money on whatever you charge for it. So there's a value proposition and it's a it's a natural order of things, kind of like a Darwinism in a way that good products succeed and bad products don't. Right. People pay for the things that they want. And it's an it's an ecosystem. And that's how money's made. And so people will go and they'll invest in real estate and they'll invest in the stuff. And that's capitalism, too. But there's really no additional value that comes from that. When you can take an entrepreneur's passion, something that they believe in, it's an innovation. It's something that they're very, very passionate about. And you are somebody that has liquid capital. You've got excess money, whether it's in your 401k that you put in a self-directed IRA. It's money to take out of the stock market. It's bonuses that you get as a corporate exec. You come into some money through, you know, some kind of an inheritance, whatever it is. You put it or you save it up. You put it to work in invest in entrepreneurs that are passionate so that you, if you're not that person, like we talked about before, that really is meant to be an entrepreneur, but you have this sort of spark of like, oh, I just wish, but I don't know, you know, fear, whatever. I don't want to give up my safe job, my benefits. I don't want to, my kids are getting ready to go to college, whatever, right? You can go and put it to work in the passion of these entrepreneurs that are creating companies. Compassion, right? It's the company and the passion, so compassion. So, but, but it sounds like it's not just, you know, the entrepreneur's mindset or the investor's mindset isn't just to make money. It seems like there's more of an emotional component to it. It's, it's to make money through something I believe in or through something that somebody else is so passionate about. So it's a very qualitative aspect. Yeah. It's like the, I kind of compare it, you know, one of the things that they, I don't even know if you really said it, but they talk about the Warren Buffett, you know, theory behind investing. You know, you invest in things that you know and understand. And you're passionate about when he says, if you're going to pick a stock, go pick a stock that you like a store you like to go to. Right. So a lot of the whole thing with this jobs act is this, you know, this disintermediation of the marketplace, the great democratization of capital is that the barrier between entrepreneurs and investors has been removed so that investors that normally kind of relied on their, their stock broker, their, their financial planner, their wealth manager to give them ideas about investing. E-Trade kind of changed that, but they still, you know, they, they become savvy in that, but they didn't know about private deals because the people they should be telling about them because of regulations and FINRA, they don't. They don't talk about it. And so then you have um, these entrepreneurs that struggle with raising capital. they friends and family, maybe, but not all the way. And there's very narrow focus on some of these angel groups. And so they have struggled to be able to find additional capital. And so by, by removing that barrier, 
you make it so that they can connect and you can do that and and they can when somebody sees something they like they can go to their website and they go oh i didn't know i could invest in a company like this and they click on the investor relations tab and they can find out information of course now the information the quality information it, it ratchets it up a whole lot better than maybe you don't have the ability to sit down across the table from somebody and convince it you know you have to really do a lot when it comes to convincing somebody that just met you through the internet to give you money right, right? You're not from nigeria nobody does that really you know i just got a call the other day from a prince you tell me that's uh, not real no, it's not real. <laughs> you, um, you mentioned uh, Warren Buffett in, in the uh, spirit of full disclosure, more of a Jimmy Buffett guy. Over yeah. Um, yeah, we do. But uh, in all seriousness, you know, I started my career uh, in, in marketing, interactive marketing in 1996, kind of right before uh, the dot-com boom. And then, you know, we had a couple of, of big years. And then, of course, you mentioned in 2000, things kind of coming to a screeching halt. Um, but back in those days, I heard the term angel investor all the time. Um, but I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't exactly know what an angel investor is. So could you define um, what an angel investor is? Okay, so there's um, angel investing or angel investor is, um, it is kind of that uh, mystique. It's a mysterious term to a certain degree. And, and um, it started, okay, the, the legacy behind it, and I talk about the whole history of angel investing in the book, um, is it started originally back, way back when, when people were, became patrons of arts and they were considered angel investors and they really didn't do it so much to make a return. It was nice that they did it, but they did it because they had a, this commitment to the arts. And that was back sort of like the very first time it was used back in the 20s and 30s, I guess. And so then the regulatory system created an environment that allowed private investors to invest in private companies after, you know, as a result of the Securities Act of 1934. And so that made it possible for companies that were private to raise money from investors. And I think it's just sort of, it got migrated into that and it didn't really become a, um, a common word that was outside of the most wealthy in the world until probably just before the dot com and kind of like, a, and in the book I talk about, this whole, I call it the, the market capitalization, where the flow of money goes in when you know, and more people got involved in angel investing in the 80s as companies were able to go public. You had Microsoft, you had Apple, you had all these big names that we have today that went public at that time. And so these, these angels exited, that participated in that exited, told all their friends, their friends got involved, and then, we, of course, we made it the bubble, right? So... Um, and but it became much more commonplace to hear about that term at that time. And so one of the things I define in the book is all the different levels of angel investing from super archangels that are like the people that put big money in and also kind of the ones you hear the names of. They're the, um, you know, the, the ones that, that like start the Y Combinator or start these incubators or they have these start these venture capital funds and all that kind of stuff. And then you have um, all the way down to like a professional angel that is somebody that invest their time in exchange for equity because they're they're passionate about entrepreneurs and they have enough money from other sources but they may not have enough capital to actually put in so they'll invest their time and so you have a whole gambit of what kind of comes into that angel investing and for those people sometimes when i'm talking to entrepreneurs that are trying to raise capital and they may not be one of those you know unicorn type of companies that's a real market maker they're more of a market participant they might be 
going to be wanting to get a franchise, but they don't have all the money to get a franchise and they need an investor to help them start a franchise or build it or buy a franchise or things like that. And I see sometimes you need to look at people and they might be more familiar with the term. You've heard the term silent partner. Oh, I'm the silent partner in this restaurant. I'm a silent partner in that. So some people that don't really think of themselves as angel investors may be more comfortable with the idea of being a silent partner or owning pieces of multiple businesses, which is the Robert Kiyosaki frame for it. I think in one book, he uses the term angel investing one time, you know, but it's like um, there's the concept. So really the angel investing is it's where somebody because of a compassion, a passion they have an emotional connection, a desire to make money through helping entrepreneurs and off the work of others like that, they'll make their own return on it. And so to the the entrepreneur, it's an angel. Well, I got somebody from this person, but to the investor, it's, you know, they're, they're doing what they do and whatever their title is, they're just trying to help that entrepreneur and make money in the process. So it's definitely about the capital side of that as well. Well, what, what are some um, misconceptions that entrepreneurs might have about angels and, and, you know, what are some mistakes they might make, when seeking investment from, you know, from outside people for their, for their private enterprise? Two, two things when it comes to how they consider investors. Um, the first would be that they, they sometimes will create their offering where they want them to put a hundred grand in, let's say. Right. And so the national average for angel investors that are part of angel investor groups, you know, you have an exception because out in California, they tend to invest more and more readily than they do in other parts of the country. But the national average is $25,000 is the investment that an individual will put in a single deal, right? And part of the reason why that is, is because most people that are smart investors that are allocating a certain amount of capital out of their portfolio for this particular asset class, they're going to take 10% of their alternate alternative investments and, and you start backing that up. Somebody that is going to has a hundred grand, they want to invest, spread it out over four companies, not one company at a hundred grand. And that would kind of mean that they would have a million dollars in, in discretionary income through stocks or various things that's liquid to be able to put into private deals. And if that's 10% of their overall wealth, you know, with real estate and everything else, then that means that they're like a $10 million person. Right. So if you got, you know, or they're like a five million dollar person that's got 20 percent allocated to this. So you're going for a hundred grand. you got a magnitude greater and the barriers to finding those people are significantly greater than finding somebody that is in that asset worth of, you know, three, four million dollars. That's trying to, you know, continue to grow their wealth and they're going to put money into this you know, for a long-term investment gain, you know, and do it in much smaller increments over a spread of five or 10 companies over a period of time. So that's the first thing. How much do they, do they um, invest? And the second thing that they think about is that I call it the beauty contest. So they'll say, you know, but when they get up and they do pitches and stuff like that, because every entrepreneur says my deal's great and it's going to make a ton of money and there's nothing else like it in the world. Right. And they all say that. So guess what? The investors hearing that from all of them, right? And so when it comes down to somebody that's serious about angel investing and they're serious about doing this, they're looking at a lot of deals. You know, if you ever do the numbers, even funds, angel groups, they'll look at 90 deals to get to five that they'll consider, okay? So when an investor is looking at deals, they're narrowing it down and they have this hidden checklist where they say, 
never doing that again. It goes back to that thing of how they lost money. Never doing that again. Never doing that again. So they'll eliminate deals pretty readily and they narrow it down to two or three. And when they get down to the two or three, guess what they're doing? They're choosing between these and it's a, it's kind of a beauty contest because they do it objective to narrow it down and then it's subjective when they finally do it. So the biggest competition that an entrepreneur has when it comes to raising capital is all the other companies that are raising capital and which deal is better from that, that investor's perspective that has the most likelihood to give them a return on investment. So if you haven't structured it properly, if you haven't put your team together, if you don't really know how you're going to make money in the marketplace, if you don't really know your marketplace well enough. If you haven't done your homework, then the odds of you getting capital are pretty slim. It's only with you know people that will invest totally on emotion and not based on good sound business practices that you'll likely convince them to get money. And that's why with the crowdfunding, stuff like that, the information that's in my book is um, so important. You, you, you talk about this in my mind immediately went to um, the struggles that I've had trying to find a literary agent, you know, just because it's, it's almost, I don't, I, maybe, maybe there's not as many parallels um, to these two different worlds as I think, but um, you know, you're looking at, at angel investors or groups of people. They have a lot of um, requests for their time and their attention. A lot of people pitching them regularly and how do you stand out, right? How do you, how do you as an entrepreneur stand out? And to me, it's similar to like the, the literary world. Um, how do I as an author stand out to an agent who's being queried by, I don't know how many tens of thousands of other authors maybe. Um, and, and it gets down to what's going to make them money and who do they think they could actually market? So that, that's where my mind kind of went to right when you were talking about that. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels in so many different things. And, you know, it's follow up and follow through is a big part of the process. It's identification and it's follow up and follow through. And I've never, I haven't actually tried to pursue a literary agent yet, but um, it's probably, I would guess that it's the same sort of thing. I call it uh, in, in the private equity world or in the angel investor world, I call it the Cougaran theory of private equity. And I call it that because, um, you know, Karen Rand's theory of private equity didn't mean, didn't sound as important as Cougaran, you know, theory of private equity. Right. So, the same way that you create a sales funnel and you work your funnel down to get to the ones that are actually be converted into, you know, buying your product. Probably the same thing that you do when you're reaching out to potential literary agents and you work your way down to the ones that are connecting and you're working this way through. It's the same thing when it comes to raising capital. You have to have a strategy that gets you to enough investors that connect with you beyond just an eyeball to be able to, um, you know, get to a point where they they spend meaningful time looking at your deal to then they ultimately convert and they pick your deal over somebody else's deal. Yeah, we talked about the entrepreneur side of things, but there's, of course, the investor side of things as well. And you mentioned earlier uh, the Jobs Act of 2012 and how that changed things. How did that, how did that change things for angel investors? And can, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Okay, so, you know, with the removal of those barriers... Um, one of the programs, so this is when I, one of the programs that's available that was really the first one that came out as the Jobs Act was the um, Reg D 506C, where they took a Reg D offering that was already existent and they modified it and they allowed, so it became 506B and 506C. And so 506C is the one that allows you to advertise that you're raising capital, you can do really whatever to raise capital. And um, you're not obligated to go through a broker dealer. You have to, if you don't, you have to have a transfer agent 
to manage the react interactions with the investors and you can you know do your own portal you don't have to be on a licensed portal and you can do anything but the one caveat is that you have to prove that those investors are accredited investors and for the audience that may not know what an accredited investor means accredited investor basically is an individual and I think they look back two to three years has a um, an income earned income of um, $250,000 or combined income of a household of $350,000 and a million dollars in net worth, not counting the primary household home, okay? So 401ks and all that stuff count. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that they always have liquid capital just because they have that because, you know, they've never really raised that bar. That's the same number that's been around for a long time, but, you know, it's 20-something years that it's been around. So, but they had, so traditional angels, that have the ability, they're very private. And so um, they don't want to prove that they're an angel investor. Everywhere else that people do that, they just sign an investor questionnaire and it's their word. And that's all it takes. When it comes to this other process, they have to prove it. And so um, they, they, and they do it three ways, one of three ways. They either have a professional vouch for them, a lawyer or accountant, a financial planner, they submit their own um, financial net worth statement that discloses because sometimes you know investors count art and all these other kind of things as part of their net their net worth and they don't want to disclose that kind of information or they basically submit the same way that they do an application for a mortgage they submit their income tax statements it's really kind of simple it's not that complicated but traditional angels really resisted it and so traditional angels. And the whole idea of crowdfunding where people could put $2,000 in and somebody's going to raise a bunch of money from a whole bunch of people that really aren't that necessarily as sophisticated as somebody that puts $25,000 in or $50,000 in, they were very resistant to the marketplace in this. So part of the reason why I felt timing had to happen, it took me longer than I wanted to to get the book out, but we had to bring net new capital into the marketplace. And there, there's millions, millions of people that are accredited investors by earned income in the United States that never participated in angel investing, never even heard of angel investing um, until, or, you know, until crowdfunding started making them curious. And the worst thing that can happen is that they go and invest on emotion, lose that money because they don't know that you got to invest in multiple deals, just like with anything to diversify your portfolio. They just do it on emotion. Oh, this is a great invention. I love it. I want five of them. I'm going to give it to all my thing. I'm going to go and invest in it. And they don't know that they really don't know how they're going to go to market. They don't know any of that stuff and they lose their money. And then they can tell all their friends, Oh, that was the stupidest thing I ever did. Never invest in a private company. And then the great promise of the jobs act will implode on itself and it won't go anywhere. It, it, it the whole purpose was to create an, a, a flow of capital to these, these entrepreneurs. So we can create jobs. We can create an economy that is not dependent on any particular big industry or any particular thing. It's just based off of innovation where everybody wins. And then the banks can, because those companies have gotten to a certain point, they're more bankable. And then the banks can step in and give them additional traditional financing and all that other kind of stuff. So, you know, that's kind of the whole thing behind it. I think I, I kind of bounced around <laughs> a little bit. No, no, that, that's great. Um, so, the, yeah, again, uh, the book is um, Inside Secrets Angel Investing. And one thing I'd love for you, there, there it is. Um, one thing I'd love, um, to hear is, you know, just finish the following sentence for me as to the best of your ability. Now I sound like a professor. Um, but the people who will get the most out of this book are people who? 
are busy executives that, or people in companies that have sufficient income to put some into this asset class that don't have the time to be a participant in or geographically limited on angel investor groups. And they have a desire to have more meaning out of their money to create a joint abundance of investing in innovation because there is something that happens to people. I've seen it again and again when they do that and they want to be able to put that money to work that way. And they've never been able to figure out how to do that. And they want to kind of demystify it, unlock the code. Because if you think back to real estate investing 20, 30 years ago, who did it? It was only the most wealthy and the institutional investors of the world. And then it became something that people could learn to do and add to their portfolio and create wealth for their generation and generations to come as another income stream. And there's all kinds of ways that they can do that. And so this book helps them figure out what's the risk. This is a long answer to the finishing that sentence. I like it. Sentence, but it's uh, it's understanding what kind of deals that they would look for, what stage of deals, what's the risk capacity based on that. And also within the resource portal that comes with it, there's worksheets and, and things that they can use and tools that they can use to understand what eliminate the ones that are just emotional so that they've got the objective side of it and they can be much more practical in the way that they go about making that investment. And and so it's really geared towards it. Everybody's going to benefit, of course, but you know, really geared towards that person that that those millions of investor, potential investors that are sitting on the sidelines that could be putting their money to work, really, truly impacting our economy and helping innovation get to market. All right. So that, uh, that um, I mean, you're, you're clearly an expert in this area and you've got a lot of, a lot of knowledge to share, which of course people could read in uh, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing by Karen Rands. Um, but I have one final question for you. And, you know, it's not about the book. Um, and I ask this to everybody I interview, uh, on uncorking a story. Um, and, and, and just bear with me because it uh, takes a bit to set up, but, but you know, you're, you're a very confident person. You're very successful at this stage of your life, but I want you to imagine yourself at a time, maybe when you weren't so confident, um, and maybe when you didn't know exactly what it is you wanted to get out of life or, or when you didn't know that you wanted to share you know, with the world, um, your knowledge in this area. And I want you to imagine yourself writing a letter to your younger self. So, you know, who you are now versus kind of who you were then when maybe you weren't so confident. What are some of the things you would put in that letter to your younger self? What would you tell? What's some advice you would give your younger self? So, um, I would say that probably the biggest thing is um, don't let fear stop you and that um, it's better. And I would, you know, I had a lot of times when we're younger, we, we don't have fear. And that's one of the reasons why there's so many young entrepreneurs versus older entrepreneurs is um, we, you know, I admire they, they, they have no fear. So they just do it. They just go for it, you know, burn the boats, right? That phrase. Um, and I had that at one point in time, and then um, life beat me down a little bit, and and uh, and so I I, I grew fear, um, and I planted you know think and grow rich right. So I had like I called it weeds growing in my brain, and so it took a minute to get those weeds out of my brain as I transitioned from 
you know, not just learning from failure, but from building upon that to being better at what I could do. And um, when it came time to uh, really step out and do this, I mean, that's why I say it took me longer because I, I had fear bringing this book out because I was so passionate about what I wanted to do with it. And I was so concerned that it would just go, you know, and I just had to, and then finally I just said, you know, and I, I got in touch with some people and they helped me understand that it's better to go ahead and get started. Guy Kawasaki is a big believer in this stuff. And that's one of the things his book Ape has really helped me a lot is that you just got to get started and even, and then you can correct. And it's kind of like that whole grow pack stuff. You do little modifications to changes so you can overcome your fear. The fear is climbing the mountain. But if you get started one step at a time and then you realize that, oh, you know, maybe I need to go over here to get up that mountain. I need to go over here to get up that mountain. And you, you're on your journey going to get to the top of the mountain. It's just you got to get started. And so um, there was a saying that, uh, um, uh, what was it? it oh, gosh, it, it's, um, oh, it, it, I can't remember. It's a parable about, um Biscuits not rising, <laughs> but again, <laughs> you know, so you got to, you know, you just have to get started. And um, because, you know, if you don't, if you, if you don't, if you, it, it, the worst thing to do, and I, I went back when I mentioned um, my involvement in Amway, one of the guys that was one of the leaders in the organization talked about, he says, the last thing I wanted to do, and this became one of the things that said, I just have got to do this. I got to quit talking about it. I got to do it. I did not want to be on my deathbed saying, what if I had done this? Oh, I always wanted to do this. And it's not just taking a trip to Paris or something like that. It was like having something that impacted the world. And so when you have a dream and a passion for something, you just have to get started and, you know, face the fear and overcome it because fear is something fear is, uh, emotions. I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's usually it's all in your head. You know, because you can always survive whatever thing if you don't, if you take and also planning, because, you know, if you go too far, then people get committed and they don't take little steps and proving out it and they'll get committed and they'll, they'll go, oh, I'm so committed in this process. I can't go back. Right. Well, no. So just get started and, and test and approve and figure it out and get better at it so that you can climb that mountain and achieve the things that you really want to do in life. Good. Well, I think that's a great point to end on. Thank you. All right. So uh, thank, you, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this interview. No, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I'm glad we could, uh, glad we could talk. Thank you for listening to my interview with Karen Rands. And if you'd like more information about Karen, please visit www.karenrands.co. As always, if you think of anybody who you'd like to hear on this podcast, please feel free to reach out to me. Mike at uncorkingastory.com.